There are winners and there are losers. And there are losers. This man, Richard Rory, is one of the losers. One of the luckless ones whom fate has singled out for a life at near misses, at fame and fortune, and most recently, at love. One way or another, this is all about to change, though not necessarily for the better. For Richard Rory has come under the aegis of the macabre man-thing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the nexus of all realities, a man-thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide to the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of 70s swamp-based monster comics. Today on the program, I'll be discussing Man-Thing number two, Nowhere to Go But Down. And I'll also talk about Man-Thing's appearance in Avengers 118. It's just a cameo. It's going to be very, very brief. I'll also talk a little bit about Val Mayeric, the artist for Man-Thing, and someone I haven't really devoted too much time on the program to, which is an oversight I'd like to rectify. Also, this episode, if all goes well, will be released less than a week after the last one. What's up with that? Uh, That's not my style at all. Am I somehow becoming more productive, more professional? And the answer to that question is maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, This should be the new normal. But as always, never underestimate my ability to procrastinate. As I always say, I am not an amateur procrastinator. I'm a procrastinator. But I'm going to try to get this show on a back on a two-week schedule starting now. But I'm also really excited because it's October. October, as you should be aware, is the best month of the year. Uh, The leaves are changing, there's a nip in the air, pumpkins are everywhere, people wearing flannel, and my daughter was born in October, and so that was a wonderful thing. Uh, And of course, Halloween. Halloween, the best holiday ever. Yes, I said it, the best. Even better than that one in December everyone bangs on about all the time. I mean, how can you compare presents under a tree to the joy of bags of candy distributed by strangers? There's monsters, scary stuff, and candy. Did I mention the candy? And the gourds. My God, so many gourds. All the while being dressed up as your favorite fictional character or or sexy variation thereof. So yes, Halloween. I love Halloween, and it's going to be Halloween month. I always get jazzed to talk about monsters and horror. I think I've mentioned on this program before that... I love the old classic monsters. You know, the Universal and Hammer sort of thing. I mean, it's what drew me to this comic that I'm talking about right now. And so, in order to celebrate October, I'll be releasing uh, another two episodes of Nexus this month, as well as several, at least six, maybe more, essays on the classic monster genre uh, from movies and comics and serial products, actually. These will appear on Daddy Elk Productions. That's daddyelk.com. Daddy Elk Productions, if you are interested, is my pet project. It's a series of linked websites and podcasts, mostly dominated by myself, but there's a few other authors there as well. And we talk about movies and comics and pop culture and writing and anything else we can think of. If you'd like to know why it's called Daddy Elk, you can find that whole story both in written and audio forms on the site. Um, Basically, it's what my daughter used to call me when she was very, very little, and it was adorable. So anyway, this month will be uh, Halloween horror-centric, and in addition to the articles I'm writing, there'll be uh, a podcast on Tomb of Dracula later later this month on the Collected Edition. That's the uh, show I do with a fellow named Brian Reese, and there will be book reviews and just all kinds of stuff. I'm just really excited about it. 
real quick, though, I do want to point out that the focus of these articles and, and the websites in general always start from a positive viewpoint. I like to talk about the things I like. I think too often there's a trend nowadays towards, uh, towards the negative, that criticism starts with why things are bad, why things are hated, rather than why things are good. And, and don't get me wrong, that can be very entertaining. There are people who do that really, really well, and it's not a less valid approach. But for me, I like to accentuate the positive. And that's not to say that I don't have a critical eye. I think on this program, I mean, obviously I love this comic, I love this subject, but I have pointed out where I felt the quality wasn't quite what I would have liked, uh, while at the same time coming at it from an angle of why it's good and focusing on the best parts of it, the nostalgia of the thing rather than from the negative. A uh, bit off subject there, but I just wanted to point that out. So if you're not, you know, into that sort of thing, that's cool. But if you are, October should be awesome on daddyelk.com, and I'd love it if you checked it out. So the first thing I want to talk about today on the program is the Avengers. Avengers 118, to the death, was written by Steve Englehart with pencils by Bob Brown. Uh, inks by Mike Esposito, color by George Russo's, lettered by Tom. Whew, I'm gonna really mispronounce this one. Orenzowski. Pretty good try. Good effort on my part. And edited by Roy Thomas. It was cover dated 19, uh, December 1973, and this was part seven of an eight-part crossover event called Avengers vs. Defenders. Man Thing's apparent appearance is very, very brief, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this. Uh, that would be another podcast entirely. But if you like heroes punching each other for contrived reasons, then seek this one out because that's because it's got it in spades. In this issue, we have the Avengers and the Defenders in team-up mode in the dimension of the Dread Dormammu, where he and Loki are doing nefarious things, and the teams have to fight Dormammu's minions. On one page we find said minions have dimension-hopped to various locations where we get this intro. Our dimension, never before in its checkered history, has this troubled, tempestuous cosmos face such a critical threat to its very being. But there are those in our dimension whose lives are dedicated to meeting these threats, others besides the Avengers and the Defenders. And in this awful hour of chaos, they too are giving their all to counter a menace none of them truly understands. And we see various heroes fighting across the world, the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Inhumans, Luke Cage, Doctor Doom, Ghost Rider, Adam Warlock, Dracula, Kazar, and of course, Man-Thing. Yep, that's it. One panel on one page. <laughs> no words spoken. Well, it's Man-Thing, so obviously no words spoken. There's not even uh, a caption. Uh, in hindsight... Probably not worth mentioning, but hey, I'm doing every appearance, and this is an appearance, so there you go. Uh, okay, I've been rambling on a while now, so let me plug another podcast, and when I come back, I'll do the main story, and I'll talk about Man-Thing number two. When you talk about comics, does it sound something like this? Look, you can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s. They haven't even discovered red kryptonite yet. And you, uh, you can't put the number 98 with the 300s. Lori the Morris hasn't even been introduced. Or maybe it sounds a little more like this. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Why not? 
I saw the other day he was carrying five elephants in one hand. Boy, you don't know nothing. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. Hello, I am the constantly caffeinated Clinton Robinson, and my comics discussions can go to both extremes, but generally fall somewhere in between. On the Coffee and Comics podcast, I will review comic stories and other comics-related topics that can be enjoyed over a cup of coffee. So pour the coffee, or other beverage of choice, and join me on the Coffee and Comics podcast, available on iTunes and coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. Way back in an earlier episode of this podcast, I made a passing comment about how I was unfamiliar with the work of Val Mayerk. This is very much untrue. I am incredibly familiar with his work. I just didn't know it. Now, I thought about not mentioning this because of my, well, fragile ego and the need to be right all the time, but you know, you just gotta own your mistakes, right? Uh, I, at the time, I was just getting this program up and running, and I had just picked up my Man-Thing omnibus, and I, I guess I just didn't do enough research yet, and I hadn't reread far enough ahead. You know, I had this in my head that it was Sal Buscema who was the main artist on Man-Thing's run. There's no reason for it. It's just what I thought. It's what I remembered. And wasn't I surprised when I realized I was wrong? Uh, I suppose that's forgivable, because Val Mayerk is not as well-known as some of his contemporaries at the time, like Sal Buscema or John Romita Sr. or Gene Colan. And that's a shame, because his work is really good. Well, on the one hand, his art is very much uh, in the 70s style of comics. He does lean heavily on fantasy, that barbarian style that was popular at the time I talked about a couple episodes ago. He even worked on a short-lived series called Thongor, uh, a Conan-esque type of thing, And the other books he was working on at Marvel were primarily in the sci-fi, horror, and fantasy realm. He worked on Frankenstein's Monster, for instance, The Living Mummy. And later he would go on to work for Heavy Metal Magazine, itself sci-fi, fantasy, heavy. Uh, In fact, it was just a sci-fi, fantasy-oriented publication. But he was able to visualize these fantasy worlds and characters in a very striking way. And I think that's why his work for Man-Thing is so compelling. Because of his ability to create and realize horror and fantasy settings, he was a perfect fit for this book. But even more so, it was his ability to realize Gerber's imagination. This can't be stated strongly enough. I mentioned something along these lines in passing on the last episode, but Gerber is throwing some wacky ideas out there. And if he wasn't working with someone who wasn't on board with his particular way of seeing the world, the book would seem, well, let's face it, it would seem ridiculous or childish, or worse than that, it could be bland. Mayerick was able to visualize Gerber's madness. He made the impossible coherent. He made the bizarre seem possible. And all the parody and satire and humor is, is, is apparent, and those panels come alive. The mundane becomes otherworldly, and the cosmic seems like it could be right outside your back door. This is an impressive thing to be able to do. I don't think this series would be as good if there wasn't such a creative and competent hand to guide what we see. So, I don't give Val Mayer enough credit on this show, and I tend to focus too heavily on the writing and not the visuals. 
And that's a mistake on my part, and I'm going to make a conscious effort to change that in the future. But now let's talk about Man-Thing number two, Nowhere to Go But Down. Cover dated February 1974, it was written by Steve Gerber, art by Val Mayerk, ink by Sal Trapiani, colorist Petra Scotese, letterer Gene Izzo, and edited by Roy Thomas. Around a campfire in the swamp, the unluckiest man in the world, Richard Rory, attempts to pour himself a cup of coffee. He burns his hand and heaves the pot into the brush where it lands on an alligator who promptly attacks him. Man-Thing, who just happens to be passing by, partakes in one of his favorite pastimes, smashing an alligator against a tree and saves Richard, who immediately passes out. When he wakes, he finds he is being tended to by Ruth Hart, a woman on the run from a biker gang. Meanwhile, down in Miami, F.A. Schist is recapping Man-Thing's exploits to a group of scientists in order to get their assistance in killing the monster. But the scientists think F.A. is full of schist, and they walk out, declaring they cannot be bought, except for one man named Hargood Wickham, a.k.a. Professor Slaughter. A man who was once fired from MIT for creating the Slaughter Room, a place to kill your enemies. You know, like you do. Wickham convinces Schist that he can kill Man-Thing, and this is the start of a beautiful friendship. Back in the swamp, Richard tells Ruth all about his unlucky life, from the moment he was born when the doctor dropped him as he attempted to slap the newborn, to just a few days ago when he accidentally killed his fiancée's mother performing a prank. Yep, he's a keeper. At the same time, Man-Thing stumbles across the outlaw cyclists called the Skull Crushers. This happens to be the same biker group wanting to kill Ruth for supposedly stealing money from them. They immediately attack the monster, but with hilarious results, including their leader Snake losing his trademark chain when it gets stuck in the Man-Thing's body. Licking their wounds, they continue their quest to kill Ruth. Schist and Wickham arrive at the construction camp where Wickham puts the finishing touches on his kill room. Really into kill rooms, this guy. The room is equipped with electricity and mirrors to fry Man-Thing to death and an audio device to lure him in that produces a sound that, according to Wickham's calculations, can only be heard by the monster. How is it possible to make these calculations without ever meeting the creature? Shut up! Science! But lo and behold, it does work and the sound it produces enrages and injures Man-Thing so much he races to find its source, becoming trapped in the monster kill room. In the room, he is immediately bombarded with electrons bouncing off the mirrors with amplimodes that cube the amperage, laser blasts like a hundred suns, and... Science! Meanwhile, the bikers catch up to Ruth and Richard, and, in an amazing bit of intuitive logic, Richard correctly deduces that it was not Ruth who stole the money, but Snake, who has used the cash to buy heroin that's hidden under his motorcycle. Sherlock Holmes ain't got nothing on this guy. Ruth is still in a panic and runs away to hide, and she does so in the monster kill room, where she startles the writhing Man-Thing enough that he realizes he still has Snake's chain stuck in his chest. He pulls out the weapon and promptly smashes all the mirrors, stopping the science. Feeling much better, Man-Thing throws the chain away nonchalantly, and it just happens to hit Snake in the head, killing him instantly. This turn of events convinces Richard that his life of unluckiness is over forever. 
and he must have incredibly powerful legs to jump to that conclusion. For his part, Man-Thing walks back to the swamp. There are winners, and there are losers. But more tragic than any of these is that special breed for whom victory holds no meaning, and among their number, count the pitiful, parodied life called Man-Thing. Now, after the insanity that was last issue, the story seems a little tame, but only because of last issue. There's still some craziness going on here and wonderful slapstick humor. But it's almost as if we're taking a breath and resetting the board. In a way, it's more straightforwardly a typical comic, just in its structure and its story. Granted, there's some Gerberian silliness woven throughout, but because this is a new self-titled series, we of course get a brief recap of previous issues and plot points, things that came before an adventure into fear. I do appreciate how this is done, though, because it's in the guise of a sales pitch, a slideshow, a sort of a 70s version of a PowerPoint presentation. This kind of ties into the story rather than the typical way this is done with is just some wistful flashback with floaty heads and whatnot. So I appreciate the uh, effort that was put in there. And this is a direct exploration of the theme of hippie versus businessman coming into conflict with each other that Gerber has been touching on in various times in the series. It's the idea of corporations tearing up the natural world for profit, except this time it's Man-Thing in particular who's the detriment to progress and profit, rather than an individual person or group. It's like, you know, you remember that Native American tribe that was in the swamp trying to stop the construction? No? Well, that's okay, the book doesn't either. Anyway, it's not too hard to determine where Gerber's sympathies lie. However, at the same time, even though Schist and Wickham are (laughs) over-the-top, mustache-twirling villains, and we are meant to sympathize with the hippies and the free spirits, regardless, the biker gang and even Richard Rory are just incompetent buffoons. It's as if Gerber is saying, the corporations are despicable, sure. They're evil. We get it but the ones who fight them are really hard to sympathize with because of the way they comport themselves. But let's get into a few details. I do like how Schiss says Wickham was fired from MIT for inventing a slaughter room to exterminate the enemies of his way of life. You know, I mean, he created an abattoir for people. You don't just get fired for that. You go to jail for that or a mental institution. I mean, goddamn, man, he built a slaughter room. That's like That's Saw-type sick crap. (laughs) But the villains in this story are all taken to the extreme. I mean, even on the other side, Snake is hilariously the stereotypical biker bad guy. To the point where he wields a chain as a weapon, and he claims it's his trademark, his power. But that works out really well in the story, ultimately becoming the instrument that will save, that will both save Man-Thing and resolve the Ruth Richards storyline. Even if it is a bit coincidental. There are many coincidences in this story. Uh, Man-Thing just happens to find the bikers who happen to hit him with the chain that happens to get stuck. Ruth happens to stumble into the trap that happens to remind him of the chain that happens to be exactly what he needs to save himself. And he happens to throw it away and it happens to kill the bad guy, etc., etc. But, yeah, you know, I have no problem with coincidence driving a story like this because this is essentially a comedy. 
from Richard's overly tragic baby-dropping backstory to Snake's over-the-top ineptitude to Shiston Wickham's mustache-twirling villainy. It's all very slapstick, screwball comedy, and this is fine. The issues as of late have been either very dark or excessively trippy, and so a by-the-numbers comedy is kind of refreshing. I mean, this is not an issue that will go down as a classic, but it's fun to read and there are a few laugh-out-loud moments. And in the end, what more do you really need? As for Val Mayerick's artwork here, it's pretty straightforward stuff. As I said in my introduction, he thrives on the fantasy depictions, and here in this story, it's mostly just people talking. Yeah, yeah there's some pretty good action panels, uh, and a bit where Man-Thing is in the kill room and he has some really great panels with him looking sad and tortured uh, really conveys his pain and confusion. But all in all, not a lot to work with here other than to be a competent artist, which he does really well. And finally, Ruth and Richard. These two will become recurring characters for a bit. The next several issues will have these crazy hippie kids getting into all kinds of misadventures with their mischievous muck monster. So so I'll have much more to say about them, uh, much more to say about them then. But for now, just understand they're going to be taking the place of the Kales, with Jennifer off sorcering and Joshua really nothing but an exposition machine, and of course Andy's being useless. Man-Thing needs a recurring focal point of view character. One of the things about having your main character be a mindless mute is that it necessitates having people that can actually interact with one another. So, and so Gerber is going the youth culture route for his dialogue springboard. Uh, this will lead to some very interesting stories and one flat-out classic in my mind. So the issue itself is pretty average. This story is basically a reset to start something bigger. Good points here and there, but it's really just a, a palate cleanser and we're going to have bigger things in the future. I'll be right back with some final thoughts. Hey, Brian. What's up, Paul? Do you like comic books? I do. I love the funny books. Do you like listening to people talk about comic books? Why, yes, Paul. I find that both entertaining and informative. Well, that's great, because there's a new podcast where each episode a famous run or story arc is discussed in detail in a fun and totally not rambling way. It's called The Collected Edition. The Collected Edition? That sounds intriguing. Who are the hosts? Well, that's the best part. It's us, Paul Matthew Carr and Brian Reese. What? Fantastic! I love us. We're awesome. Where can folks find this amazing podcast, Paul? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. The Collected Edition can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, as well as online at CollectedEditionPodcast.com. That's great. I'm going there right now. Me too. Are we done? Yeah, I think that'll do. All right, so not much more to say here. Other than next time will be Man-Thing number three, Day of the Killer, Night of the Fool. This will be the introduction of Fool Killer. And if you don't know Fool Killer, I pity you. And I pity the Fool Killer. That's right. This issue will set up so many puns that will suit me to a T. In fact, you could call me Mr. T. And I pity the Fool Killer. Yes. <laughs> There will be more of that. Lots and lots of those jokes to come. I actually have my uh, my team working on my A material now. It's uh, it's my A team. And I love it when a pun comes together. <laughs>
And I'm going to revisit uh, uh, giving my impressions on the R.L. Stein run that wrapped up a month or uh, a couple months ago, I guess. I sort of let that drop, but I got a, a private message from someone and asked me if I would continue that. So I will. I'll be talking about Man-Thing number 3 and Man-Thing number 3, 2017 and 1974, respectively. It's almost as if I planned that. Almost. I didn't. Or did I? I didn't. <laughs> anyway, again, if you're so inclined, please check out DaddyElk.com and all the related sites there and the October content that will be coming throughout the month. Uh, and send me some feedback, if you can, to nexus at daddyelk.com, or, or comment on the individual episodes, or leave a review on iTunes, all of which would be great, and I'd appreciate it, and I'd love to hear from you. As always, thank you for listening. More to come very, very soon. Bye. You've been listening to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elk production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. The show could be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. You can contact the show via email at nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at Nexus of All. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained?